title of uh, today's message is The Death of Death, and I have to give plug to that. That's not an original title. It comes from the title of a book of John Owen, who was a Puritan, who when he talked about the cross, he talked about that being the death of death. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Isn't that exciting? We're going to talk about death. And, but we do it not only because we're that section in the catechism, but any pastor, and especially any pastor who is of the Puritan background, of which I am, had a great desire that their people, when they faced death, would do it joyfully, gloriously, celebrative, and ready to meet their Savior. In fact, they, fa they thought they had failed in their pastorate if their people died in anguish. Because death has been completed. It has been neutralized in a way. Uh, it's tough for you because you guys are young enough, most of you are young enough, you think you're indestructible. You can do almost anything and then you find out, ah, usually within your early lifetime but elsewhere, you are not. We are all gonna face death. The statistic is still true. One out of one dies. There is no escape unless the Lord comes back, and even there is a kind of form of death that takes place. And we also have sanitized death in our day and age. We go to the hospital. We're in a nice, comfortable environment. They give us pain medication. They help us move through that. Even with hospice, they're there to watch over us. It's not that we die at home without medication, as many people did. It's not that young mothers die in childbirth because of the labor. It's not that we have people who die what we would consider an inordinate age very early, which was back in uh, up until the last maybe 200 years was the norm. If you hit 50, you were considered an old man. Well, now if you hit 65, that's the new 50 you still have a whole lot of years left in you. We sanitize it, we, go to, we, we, we do burials in a funeral home. We embalm the body and we put it in a coffin. And people come up and Aunt Martha comes up and looks at it and says, oh, doesn't he look natural? I'm going, Martha, he's dead. <laughs> There's nothing natural about this. But we... That's the way we try to deal with it. What we want to do today is to talk about death. Jesus' death. Spend a little time on that. Most of the time I hope to spend upon our death. And then finally the most mysterious, complex uh, phrase in all of the Apostles' Creed. That he descended into hell. Okay, um, and I hope to get to that one before we have to, before John stands up and goes, that's enough, I'm tired of death. <laughs> Let's do something else. So, the creed, or the Lord's Day 16 goes this way. Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer death? Because the justice and truth of God required that satisfaction for our sins could not be made in any other way than by the death of the Son of God. Why was he buried? To, share, to show thereby that he was really dead. 
And since then Christ died for us, why must we also die? Our death, death is not a satisfaction for our sin, but only a dying to sin and an entering into eternal life. What further benefit do we receive from the sacrifice and death of Christ on the cross? That by his power our old man is with him crucified, slain, and buried, so that the evil lust of the flesh may, flesh may no more reign in us, but that we may our, offer ourselves unto him a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Why is it added he descended into hell? That in my greatest temptation I may be assured that Christ my Lord, by his inexpressible anguish, pains, and terror, which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before, has redeemed me from the anguish and torment from hell. And with that, we end the lesson, and we can all go down to IHOP and have burgers. IHOP. <laughs> okay. Now, I, I want to take a look at it. First of all, let's take a look at Jesus' death. Uh, the creed discusses it here in, in lineal line. We've talked about his incarnation, about his suffering, and now uh, suffering not only on the cross, but in, the, in his life. But now we get to his death on the cross. And his death was there because justice and truth of God required it. Remember the root reason why he had to die? Genesis 2 16 to 17, you shall surely eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat you shall surely die. And what God was saying right there, sin is a capital offense. And the only way in which sin could be dealt with is that somebody died for it. Now, God was merciful in that they ate of the fruit and they did not automatically physically die. They died in their relationship and fellowship with God. God comes in the cool of the evening and they're hiding themselves from God, which is one of the most ridiculous things they could have done. How can you hide from a guy who's, who's everywhere and sees everything and knows everything? He can't hide. It's like little grandchildren who want to play hide and seek. And go stand behind a chair where you can see their little heads popping up. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> Sin had to be dealt with as a capital offense. And therefore, the one who had to deal with it for us had to be both God, divine, infinite, and human, finite. So he could be the go-between the infinite God and finite human beings. He could experience it on behalf of both parties and therefore reconcile them. Now, not everyone accepts that Jesus died on the cross. That may be difficult for you to believe because here we preach that over and over again. But if you go out in the theological world or in the world of unbelievers, you will hear people that said, no, Jesus didn't die. And they give, come up with some issues. Like, he only swooned. It was the amount of pain and suffering and loss of blood. He simply swooned and he looked like he was dead. Or he went into a coma because of that loss of blood. Or he was asleep. 
And again, like a little kid trying to hide behind a chair, that is some of the most ridiculous thinking. First of all, the soldiers who put him to death were professional in crucifixion. They not only knew how to do it, they did it well, they did it perfectly every time. One out of one who were on a cross died. May have taken days, but they died. And then the scripture tells us that when Jesus, when it came to be time to ascertain whether Jesus had died, one of the soldiers takes a spear, runs it up through the rib, and out from that wound comes blood and water, which means the tip of the spear pierced the, the uh, membrane around the heart, and the blood and water came out. He was dead. And Roman soldiers would not allow a live person to come down from the cross. Remember what they did to the two thieves? They broke their legs so they would suffocate. And they had to do it. There's, to, to say that he did anything but die is ludicrous. However, there are people who want to believe that because it helps them in their dealing with their own issues. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He wasn't lumped with the poor in some kind of mass grave where they put lime over you in order to keep the smell down. A rich man named Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud, and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Elsewhere, the other gospel says, he bound him up, a, a kind of a, a very quick burial. And there he was. If at all Joseph had ever thought that Jesus was alive, if there was any kind of heat or, or pulse or anything, any kind of breath, do you think he would have done that? He was a follower of Jesus, although a silent one. And he would have taken him out of the tomb, taken him home, and cared for him. Now, all of this was to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah had said. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. It's interesting that a man who really had no home, he, they probably had money. I mean, they had a treasurer. Judas was a treasurer. You don't have a treasurer unless you have some money. They weren't dirt poor. In fact, they probably lived like middle-class individuals. But definitely not enough for a tomb. And for what? But Joseph gives him a tomb, a rich man. And the fourth thing is about the death of Christ. It entails part of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul is saying, absolutely, his death is important. It is crucial. It is the gospel. And so when we talk about coming to Jesus, we talk about, and who he is, we talk about his birth, life, death, and resurrection. It's all about Jesus. That's the gospel. Or as the psalmist said in Psalm 16, for you will not abandon my soul to shale, that is death, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Which is 
a prophecy of what would happen to the Son of God when he did die. You will not abandon me to death, which is what Sheol means. So what we say is that on the cross, he tasted death on our behalf. He experienced it. A good friend of his, Lazarus, died, and he went to the grave four days later. He had seen death again and again. We believe that his father, Joseph, died, so he had known it firsthand. He had watched others. In fact, some he had raised from the dead, but death was such a common thing that he'd seen it. He'd seen crucifixions because if you were, anywhere you went where the Romans were, the way in which they dealt with capital offenses is crucifixion. So he watched the suffering and pain of individuals for days on end as they slowly died, lost their energy. And then there was a garden where he was facing his own death and he went back to the Father and said, if it is your will, take this cup from me. And then he, he acquiesced, no, there's no other way. I have to die. You can see the struggle with him. Here he is, the infinite, finite being. Someone who has never known anything but life. And he's facing death. That death. And in his own suffering, he knows he's going to face separation from the Father whom he has known eternally. And that's part of the suffering. But he was facing his own death. Now, on our part, we have to face our own death. And this is the second part, our death. Part of the uh, beauty of the, of the catechism, as I said before, is that it is pastoral. Many times we talk about the death of Jesus. And we just leave it there. Catechism goes, said, well, let's look at our own death in light of Christ's death. That our death is not satisfaction for our sins, but is it a portal from our sinful life to eternal life. And that's how we have to look at it. Uh, John Bunyan wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress, second most read book in all of the world. If you don't have a copy of it, get on Amazon, go to Barnes & Noble or whatever. Get a copy and read it. It ought to be mandatory reading for every Christian. And at the end, when he is facing his own death and going from the land to Beulah land, he has to cross a river. And when he gets into the river, it's okay for a little while, and then the river gets rough and the bottom just sinks out and he has to swim. And the one who is with him, I think it's hopeful, cries out, Look across, look on the other bank, look at the other side. And he's just floundering in there. He says, I can't stand. And Hopeful says, I can't stand it, that you can't stand it. <laughs> no, not quite. <laughs> That's a little extrapolation. But the, uh, the idea is moving across that river, which is a symbol of death. The one thing he has to do is look on the other side and see his Savior there. And that's what death is meant to be for those who, follow, who are followers of Christ. I listed seven things that are about our death. Two of them you know pretty well because they are preached fairly well 
in this congregation. One, it's a death from our first parent, Adam. Because sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Problem is we participated in Adam in the fall. Now, people don't like that. They think, that's not fair. I should have had my opportunity to not eat the fruit. Except for the idea of federal, federal headship, that Adam was the head of all of humanity, and he represented us, and he was in a perfect state, and even in that perfect state, he fell. Do you think we would do any better? No. But we were represented, we participated. When he died, sin entered us, and we were commissioned to die. It's just that way. And the second negative is death from our own conception and birth. In sin did my mother conceive me, David talks about. Not because of the way in which he was conceived, but sin has been passed down. And it is a part of our lives, whether we like it or not. It is a reason why we do what we do and why we do not do what we know we ought to do. It is a reason why we are blind to God, that we are hard-hearted, that we are uh, unable to hear what he wants to say, even when it's clearly written in a book. It's because sin covers and colors everything we are. And it's also the issue and problem for all of our issues in life. Our fears, our lusts, our lying, our killing, our wrath. And sin, in a way, is destroying our body. If not because of, the, of following it and doing things that we ought not to do. For instance, tomorrow I have a procedure on my ab abdominal aorta. Why? Because when I was young, I used to smoke cigarettes. And periodically, I still like a cigar and a pipe. And my doctor looks at me and says, you're going to have this because there may be an abscess. I'm going, doctor, I didn't, ever do, didn't even smoke enough. He said, no, we're going to check this out. Imagine what, if you're a pack-a-day person, what that could be like. Even if you give it up, it still has an effect. That's part of sin. Positive side is, the first of all, death from the death of Christ. Romans 6, 5 to 8. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. It is, more, not, not, it is more than simply identifying with Christ. When Christ died, we died. There's a union that took place. His death, dying for sin, was because of sin, and it was because of our sin. And it was as that old spiritual say, were you there when they crucified my Lord? And they really never answered the question. This passage says, yes, you were. In the mind of God, you were on the cross. And when he took his last breath, 
you took your last breath. That's the mystery and the wonder of what took place on the cross. You may not hear that very often, but you were there and you participated in his death. And it's just like in Adam, where Adam was the federal head of uh, all people. Christ was the federal head of all of God's people. And he was a forerunner, and he was the one who is now able to give us life and life eternal. Fourthly, death by our baptism. Romans 6, 3 to 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Or Colossians 2, which is a parallel passage. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Your baptism was a vicarious participation in the death of Christ. That's why, and we'll see this later on in the creed when we talk about what is baptism. It is more than just a rite. It is more than just a ceremony. Something mysterious happens when you are baptized, whether as an infant or as a believer or as an adult. Something mysterious for God's people. They participate in the death of Christ, in his baptism of death. And that makes it more than a symbol. Symbol. Unfortunately, we sometimes take a look at that and say, oh, it's a nice little thing we ought to do. No. For those who are God's people, they are participating in the death of Christ. And that's one of the reasons we baptize. And it's one of the reasons you need to be baptized if you are a believer and have not been baptized. Because there's an act as a, as a means of grace there is in that act something that unites you with Christ unlike anything else. Martin Luther, when he was faced with the, his accusers and he was being plummeted by Satan and he was in doubt even about his own faith, his own life and what he was doing, used to say to himself, I am baptized. Not that the act of baptism assured him but it was what the, happened at the act of baptism. He was united with Christ in his death. He died. And as Christ was raised to new life, he was raised to new life. It's also one of the reasons why when we baptize, the individual goes underneath the water. Whether it's out in a lake or a river, and it's a total immersion, or whether it's uh, the pastor scooping up the water and putting on the head of a baby. You go underneath the water as a symbol. And at that time, in some wonderful, wild, mysterious, but true way, you are participating with Christ in his death. 
That's why it's a sacrament, not a rite. That's why it's so important. And that's why you turn back to that sacrament every time you're faced with temptation. I am baptized. I participated in the death of Christ for my sin. My sin no longer holds me. I have life and life eternal. Or better yet, life of the eternal one is in me. Not because of the act, but because of the union. Okay. Fifth, death by our daily dying to sin. I'm going to begin at verse 11 of Romans 6. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Part of our death is dying to sin daily. That's what we are called. What, what I would call a partial death to sin. It is that we are now dealing with progressive sanctification. Having been united with Christ, justified as a declaration by the Father because of the Son, His life, death, and resurrection. We are now moved immediately into that process of what we are in position becomes practical. And the sin that caused the Christ to go to the cross, now we are dealing with little by little. Some of it is easy to deal with for whatever reason. Others are as pesky as wasps that are coming out of their hive because you hit it. And they just, just keeps buzzing around. Or it's as pesky as an illness or pain that you are having trouble to shake. But in all ways, our lives are meant to be dying to sin and living to God. To fight sin all of our life. Or, as the Puritans put it, to mortify it. That is, you strangle it. You get hold of that sin and you put your hands around the neck and you squeeze as tight as you can until, not to the, until it cries, uncle, because it never will, until it goes, and it's dead. Or you starve it. You don't feed it. You don't go where you know it will erupt. You don't look at what you know will cause it. You don't do the things that you know will cause you to sin and you starve them. And the key to that in this verse is found in verse 13 where it says do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourself to God. Pilgrim trying to cross that final river was told one thing. Look at the far shore. Look at the palace. Look at the Savior. Don't look at the water. The way in which you deal with sin is whenever it crops its ugly head, you look to Jesus. You go back to Him. You open up your Bible. You pray. 
you get a friend to come with you and pray. Wherever it may be, especially the peskiest sins that you have, you get rid of the things that would feed it, and you look to Jesus over and over and over again. See, And that's dying to your own sin. And it's something we are called to do daily. Do we do it perfectly? Since when have human beings ever done anything perfectly? Even the best things we do are tainted by sin. But we begin to win the battles. As I said, some of the battles are easy. Not difficult sometimes giving up cigarettes, although it may take a while. I have a friend who it took him four or five years after, actually six, almost ten years after his conversion before he gave up cigarettes. Sometimes it's instantaneous. God works in different ways. And sometimes you have those sins that will just pester you your whole life. And you won't get rid of it until you die. And as I think it's one of the ways in which God keeps us humble. We talk about becoming more and more holy, but we will never become perfectly holy. We will always need God's grace. But daily, you deal with your sins. I'll tell you, after 60, almost 68 years, I wish I had done a better job. My wife wishes I had done a better job. <laughs> the seventh one, the sixth one is you die physically, death physically. Romans 6, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We do not need to fear our physical death. We may fear and be anxious about how we die. I, for one, do not want to die in an automobile accident where the car catches on fire. I don't want to have to die by fire. I just, fire just scares me, scares the gajibers out of me. But I'm not afraid of death. And that's the difference. You have to fear death only in its manner, not in what it does. Death is a transfer from our sin life to eternal life. It's a portal. It's a door. We talk about, and we use euphemisms for death in our day and age. Oh, he passed away. What did he do? Just kind of disappear? Uh, now, we ought to say he passed from this life to eternal life. From a sinful life to a life of the eternal one. What death does, it closes the door on the fight that we all have dealing with sin. And it slams it shut, never to be reopened, because you can't come back. As much as mediums and others would love to bring people back because it's good for money, it will not happen. It is, uh, it is for once, uh, for man to die once and then comes the judgment. The door is closed. And what the door has ushered you into 
It's a great bliss, joy, freedom that you've never, ever even experienced here. Because everything we do is blotted by sin. Even our greatest joy is not the greatest joy that there is. Take a look at the picture of heaven in the scriptures and you, play, you see a place that is far superior to anything we have ever known. All that is but a tiny little foretaste of what's good. It's like the difference between eating a McDonald's burger and a great prime steak. Ex uh, exasperated over and over again. Even the best experience you have, nothing like what you could do. And once you die physically, sin is gone. It no longer has a hold on you. And that's the last one. Death to sin altogether. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over us. It's a death is a funeral of sin. And I think that's part of what Owen meant when he said the death of death. It's a funeral for sin. And our permanent death is to sin now. We will be fully sanctified. Not glorified. Glorification is when we our body and spirit put together without sin. When you die before Christ returns, you are fully sanctified. That will do a lot. Some Pentecostals a real lot of problem because we think they think we can be fully sanctified now. No. You always have sin. But your spirit will be fully sanctified. It'll be perfect. Awaiting that reunion between body and spirit. Waiting what's called the second resurrection. The first resurrection when you went from death to life in your conversion. The second resurrection is when Christ comes back and the two parts of what makes us human, body and spirit, are united into a living soul, a nephesh, a living soul. And we are perfect in every way. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that day when the body is perfect. You guys, you're still going. I'm falling apart. The chest has fallen into the drawers. <laughs> Think about that one, Sydney. <laughs> There'll become a time when we run around and we are perfect. That's what our death looks like. And when you think about these things and put them together, you realize what we have to wait for. Why we shouldn't have to fear our death but look forward to it. It is far better. We may not look forward to leaving individuals. But if they're in Christ, we'll be reunited. And we may not look forward to what they'll have to go through when we die. But we all go through that. When I was 22, I learned of the death of my best friend in high school. Got stung by some wasps, didn't know he was allergic. Died within a few minutes. At 22, that's really tough to take, that another 22-year-old would die in that way. But now I look back and say, man, this is going to be good stuff. Don't. Be concerned about that body in the casket. 
Because where I am, I'm going to be rejoicing. And in the spirit, because I have no body, I am just going to be sitting and dancing. And Presbyterians don't dance. <laughs> but I will up there. Okay? Fullness in the full life is found in Christ. That's what Paul said. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die. Uh, and die to the Lord. So that whether, whether you live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. He holds us. We don't hold him. We are his possession. He'll take care of us. And therefore, when we look at our death, we'll just simply be ushered into perfect sanctification. Our response is we ought to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. That's what the catechism says. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And it ought to make you rejoice. Can I hear an amen? Amen. I heard more than one amen. That's okay. Last part of this uh, part of the catechism is Jesus' descent. That little phrase, he descended into hell. Sometimes when you look at copies of the Apostles' Creed, you will see there's a little asterisk. And it will say, this was not in the original. And that asterisk is correct. Apostles' Creed was written about 385 A.D., that phrase was entered in about 650 A.D., almost 300 years later. And we're still trying to figure out why. Because there's really not much evidence. Some would take a look at it and say, well, it's, a, it's an expression of death descended into hell. But he's, uh, the creed has already talked about he suffered, died for, uh, on our behalf. It's a redundant. It's a redundant redundancy. Or... He went into the place of eternal punishment for three days while he was in the tomb. And they pull out verses like Ephesians 4 that talks about him coming down uh, and going under the earth. And they think that's it, though. That passage probably is more about his incarnation than that. About 1 Peter 4, 6, it talks about more about the present sufferings and the cross or the locus classicus of trying to defend this is 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20, where it talks about he went to preach to those in the time of Noah. Well, I think if you look at that, it'll, it, it, it says Noah was preaching to the people in his time of the destruction that was to come. And basically what it says, if you say, well, he had to have three days of eternal punishment in the grave. The cross was not sufficient. When he said, it is finished, oh, the price hadn't quite been paid and he had to spend a couple more days paying it. No, it is finished meant paid in full. Or the promise to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. He didn't say, well, come Sunday, you will be with me. Today you will be with me in paradise. Or Luke 23, 46, where he commits his spirit to the Lord, to his, to his Father. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Oh, by the way, can you wait three days before you take it? No. You see, those kind of statements give us the, the reality that it, 
descended into hell is not talking about those three days in the tomb. Some would say it's a mission of victory and liberation that he went to preach to the captured souls of the Old Testament. Um, but again, the idea is today he was with his father. Same thing, kind of doesn't work against that. And they had already had the preaching done to them before they died. And we know that once you die, you do not have a second opportunity. Now that thought about it was a, a mission of victory and liberation is one of the reasons why you have a teaching on the inter, intermediate state. That a person can go and work off their sins uh, between in, in purgatory. Well, no. You don't, ever, you don't ever walk off your sins. Your sins were worked off of you because of Christ. His life, death, and resurrection. Or they say, well, they put it there to kind of give an order of intensity of the cross and the intensity of Christ's life. He suffered in his life, he suffered in the cross, and he suffered the pains and pangs of hell on there. It's not necessarily a timeline, but it, it talks about an increased humiliation that Christ had to go through. We do know this, that the word descended into hell is not the word of called Gehenna, which is a place of punishment. We do know that they were thinking of the word of Sheol or Hades, which is the place of death, the grave, a place where souls of the dead go. And again, the key there is the souls. The grave is for the body. The souls are taken with God. And so you could think of it as an order of intensity, just brings it more of what Christ went through and what he suffered. And so, or some of us, and this is the final one, is it spiritual. As he suffered pain and torment, which he experienced on the cross, it was for our benefit and our rescue. And that is how the catechism talks about it. That in my greatest temptation, I may be assured that Christ my Lord by his inexpressible anguish, pains, and terrors, which he suffered in his soul on the cross and before, has redeemed me from the anguish and torment of hell. And so for that reason, people have left it in to the Apostles' Creed. I, if if I'm, I'm pulling on the, my deteriorating gray cells, it's not in the Nicene Creed. They don't deal with it. But it's the idea. To send it into hell, it says, when I think about the cross, I think he did all of this for me, for my sins, for someone who is blind and wicked and hateful, loved the darkness more, for the light, more than the light, and he did it for me. However, most of the people I have read about this say when you get to this phrase and you've gone through all those arguments you simply shrug we don't know we have no really no understanding and you know some people say no we gotta know no you don't there's mystery Christian faith is filled with mystery and the beauty of having mystery is that we do not depend upon our own intellect 
but we tend we depend upon the grace and mercy and love of God. I may not know, but I know the God who does know. And I know he loves me and is merciful and gracious unto him. Application, two parts. One comes from the book of Revelation. John sees this image of Christ. Of Christ. And in verse 17 says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. See, this section reminds us who really holds our great enemy, death itself, our Savior. It's not an accident. It's not uncontrollable. It's not, although mysterious, it is not a conquering part of our life. Christ holds death and he ushers us from a sinful life into a perfect life. Or the second passage I like with this is from Psalm 73. Uh, a psalm that I really appreciate because it, it does talk to the way we are in our day and age. We, the psalmist looks around and he looks at all the, the people who are who have nothing to do with God, and they're having great lives. I mean, they own the yachts, and they have everything you want. Uh, they can buy the latest gizmos. They can do anything they want, probably because they're not tithing and 10% taken away from it. That's a lot of money. But he looks at them, and he says, I, got, I became envious. I looked at them and when I thought how to understand to me it seemed a wearisome task verse 16 until I went into the sanctuary of God then I discerned there and truly you set them in slippery places you make them fall to ruin it's like being you ever play king on the mountain king on the hill after it's rained it's lovely being up top because you watch these idiots try to crawl up the mud, <laughs> okay? And when they get to the top, you just push them right back. He said, that's what it was like for these people. They're clawing their way up, and when they get to the top, poof, they just slide right back down. He said, that's what I saw when I was in the, in the uh, temple of God, the sanctuary. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you, that is with the Lord. You hold my right hand hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Your flesh and your heart are going to fail. One out of one of you are going to die. But God is the strength of your heart and your portion forever because of the death and burial and looking forward to the next time I'm here to teach the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. 
Father, we ask that you would take what we have talked about, that you would drill it deeply into our hearts and our minds, that as we ponder it, that you would guide our pondering in such a way that we would see the beauty of what you have done for us in Christ and who you are, that we would have the resolve to remember our participation in the cross and baptism as a sacrament and the means of grace of that participation, that we may have a great desire to die daily to sin, to progress and mortify the sin that so easily entangles us that we may become more and more like Jesus, which is holiness itself. And then when we come to our own death, we would look at it not in fear, but as that portal by which we will enter into life and life eternal. And may we be those who do so graciously, joyously, blessedly, marvelously as a witness to what you have given to us in your Son. Therefore, we commit ourselves to you in the name of Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.